Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move, a busy show as always this Thursday with the U.S. vote count dash, a major crypto player crash. And softer inflation data making a splash. And starting with those U.S. midterm elections, we continue to follow this still unresolved battle for control of Congress. Two key races that will help decide which party wins the Senate in Arizona and Nevada are still too close to call. Georgia also now heading for a December runoff vote, too. Who will win? The House still undecided, too, although Republicans are expected to eke out a narrow majority there. The very latest on the ballot box brouhaha coming right up while the battle to control Congress continues. The battle against inflation may be finally bearing fruit. The U.S. just announcing that consumer prices, one of the key areas of concern for voters in these midterm elections, rose by a less than expected 7.7%. That's year over year for the month of October. Month over month inflation eased as well. The market reaction to this report, well, I can tell you, very positive. Stocks set to rally and take a look at that. Bond yields tumbling too. It, of course, is just one month of data, but it is giving uh, investors hope that the worst of the Federal Reserve rate tightening may be ever nearer. The worst, far from over perhaps for crypto amid what's being called an era-defining moment. Another one for the industry leading crypto exchange FTX still looking for a savior after rival Binance balked at a rescue deal. FTX, with a financial hole estimated at some $8 billion, could be headed for bankruptcy. Don't worry if you're confused about what's going on. We will explain shortly on the show the state of clients' money, which may have been used improperly here too and not segregated. Also, a huge concern, the issues once again, of trust and accountability, which have always bedeviled the lightly regulated crypto space back in focus in a big way once again because of this. And the knock-on effects already severe. Rival exchange Coinbase falling 10%. Mining firm Riot blockchain down some 8%. Robinhood, the trading app, down over 13%. Sam Bankman-Fried, who's been a guest on this show, the head of FTX, said to hold a big chunk of Robinhood and maybe pressured to sell. So there's just huge questions out there. Bitcoin also falling to below $18,000 per Bitcoin. That's a two-year low, and actually we're beneath that now. It's since stabilized a little bit, as you can see. Crypto Congress, CPI, call it a days on the high seas. Let's begin with today's U.S. inflation data. And Rahul Solomon joins us now with details from the report. And Rahul, a welcome reprieve. It is below and significantly below now that 8% level. Absolutely. This is the first time, actually, Julia, that we've seen yearly inflation come in sub eight since January. This is the lowest sort of annual figure since January of 2022, and investors clearly like it. And I take your point, Julia, that this is just one report. Absolutely. But take a look. If you look over the last few months, we can show you this chart here. When we had that peak annually of 9.1% in June, we'll take a look. Every month after that, it starts to move slightly lower from 8.5 to 8.2 to now 7 
7.7. And I think that's what investors are really responding to today, that we are moving in the right direction. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, as the expression goes. So what did we see in this report, Julia? Well, we saw some pretty significant declines in areas like used cars and trucks, medical care, apparel, airline fares. Now, on the other hand, we did see some increases that are uh, continue to be worrisome. We saw shelter prices, essentially accommodations, how much it costs to put a roof over your head. That continued to rise. Uh, food prices continue to rise. And energy, you can see, uh, also significantly higher from the past year. So in a lot of categories that are essential necessity categories, we are still seeing increases. And of course, that is problematic. But in terms of directionally where we're going, it's feeling like, okay, maybe the medicine is starting to work. It feels like, Julia, for months, investors, economists, financial reporters were all wondering, is it working yet? Is it working yet? And with every report, it felt like, I don't really think so. And this sort of suggests, okay, maybe it is, or at least the first signs of that. Finally feeding in, but but I think your point about food and and shelter and energy is a, a vitally important one for for people mm-hmm. who spend the vast proportion of their earnings or their money on this. It, inflation feels a lot higher than um, what seven point seven percent to those people. The big question, of course, and, and you've already alluded to it, is what next for the Federal Reserve, and does this give them enough? leeway now to say, okay, perhaps we don't have to hike three quarters of a percent at the next meeting. Mm. Can we just go half a percent? What do we think? I think so. I I think so. I definitely think this leads credence to perhaps doing less rather than more, right? Perhaps half a percent, which of course in traditional terms is still pretty significant. But in these times, that would be sort of a a cooling of what we've seen the last four meetings or so. So I think we're not there yet in terms of really taking your foot off the brake, because as you know, Julia, uh, Chair Powell has been very clear about what they're looking for in terms of evidence that inflation is significantly cooling. And what that would be is a month over month uh, decline, right? Month over month declines in inflation. And even though this was a better than expected report, this was not that. So this is far from being over the inflation fight. I mean, the fight continues. But again, it is a step in the right direction, a move directionally uh, in the right direction. It certainly is. Rahul, great to have you with us. Thank you. Rahul Solomon there. And from the immediate future of the economy to the future of politics over the next two years, at least in the United States, Joe Biden is hailing the power of democracy as Democrats have fended off major Republican gains in the U.S. midterm elections. But the fate of Congress still hangs in the balance while the Republicans look set to take the House. The race for the Senate is coming down to two key votes in Nevada and Arizona. And Sunland Safari is on Capitol Hill for us and has the latest. How much longer do you think we have to wait to uh, see all these votes counted and get a sense of who will be ultimately in control of, of Congress? That certainly is the big question. A lot of these races that are still yet to be decided, as you mentioned, Arizona and Nevada, they are still counting votes, making sure they're going through each and every vote. And of course, in the Senate, we still have the outstanding race in Georgia. That has been pushed to a runoff because neither of the candidates got the 50-point threshold that was needed. So that race is pushed to December 6th. We won't know the results of that race until early December. Democrats right now are hoping to win Uh, Both of the Senate races still outstanding in Arizona and Nevada. Of course, Republicans pushing hard. I spoke with Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer yesterday. He said he gave a thumbs up and said he's feeling good. But certainly Democrats in the Senate don't want to do anything to speak about the results before they formally come in. But 
As you said, the House still in limbo here, too. There are about 30 races yet to be called. CNN has not formally projected the House uh, to change hands yet, but House Demo- excuse me, House Republicans are certainly on track to likely take the majority. Of course, that's going to be a new day here in Washington, Julia, with now um, Capitol Hill split, a politically divided Congress, of course, with Democrats in control of the White House with President Biden. Yes. We shall see. Sondland, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. And an abrupt twist spelling trouble once again for the crypto sector. Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, says it's backing out of a deal to buy rival FTX after a review of its finances. Binance said Wednesday the embattled company's problems were beyond its control or ability to help. Now FTX is in danger of collapsing, raising a whole host of questions. Anna Stewart joins me now. I think there will be a lot of viewers at this moment going, what? Like, what's going on? What happened? Why is the crypto sector all up in uproar again? And there will also be a lot of people going, I told you so. This is one giant Ponzi scheme. Just cut through the noise, Anna. What happened here? At the very heart of this problem is simply a lack of trust and confidence in FTX, the crypto exchange, and also its sister company, Alameda Research, and how interconnected these two were, largely with Alameda holding a lot of FTX's native tokens, FTT, their sort of inner cryptocurrency. So there was a lack of confidence here. And over the weekend, Binance decided to liquidate their entire holding of FTT. And that really sparked uh, a spiral, I think, of people wanting to get their money out. Essentially, sort of the run on the bank situation we often see, but in terms of crypto. And then there was no lender of last resort. I mean, there was for about 24 hours with Binance, but it's pulled out citing due diligence. There are lots of reports that perhaps U.S. regulators are now investigating, lots of reports that suggest perhaps some underhand dealings were going on. But we really don't know. All we know at this stage is a complete lack of confidence has resulted in one of the world's most, well, was considered most stable crypto platforms is now going bust. And this is important. This is a platform that is very well known all over the world and actually has its name plastered on the arena in Miami. It's got lots of sports deals and it's going bust by the looks of it. I mean, I think there's so many questions to ask about the role of a self-issued token on the balance sheet of this company, Um, the the interplay between two giant exchanges and and competitors and the role that that they had too. And also, I think at the core of this, for ordinary uh, crypto players, the client's money, how is the client's money being used in this circumstance? I think too, and there is a huge um, gap now and lack of understanding over where that client money is and how big the hole it seems has been created by this. And that the danger of contagion, particularly when this is a company that was providing bailouts to others in the crypto sector, when we saw that initial downdraft in in crypto prices earlier this year, Um, contagion risk? Well, you can see contagion risk in terms of just what's happening with crypto. Look at Bitcoin today and how it's trading. And this is doing nothing for the crypto community. It's doing nothing for those that do see a value to cryptocurrency. But here we're seeing customers who are not now allowed to take their money um, out of FTX, who will be potentially losing a lot of money at this stage and aren't protected. And this goes back to the Part of the issue that we talk about a lot, and I'd say this has unique issues, this relationship between Alameda and FTX, and as you say, its native token, lots of questions to be answered. But the heart of it, where is the protection? Where is the regulation? How much should there be? And is anyone now going to trust cryptocurrency? It's another really high profile bust story. 
And that does nothing for the entire community of cryptocurrency. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, JP Morgan's saying this is going to transform the industry. But to your point, the regulation here once again. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. They may be without power, but they're not powerless. Ukraine's heroic repair crews battle to keep the lights on this winter. We'll hear from the country's energy minister about the latest next. And later in the show, why so serious Twitter? It's cutting off parody accounts, comedians and much more. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. America's top general, General Mark Milley, is saying he's seeing initial signs of Russia pulling out of the Kherson region. A Ukrainian flag now flies over a recently reclaimed village there. Moscow says it's ordered its forces to withdraw from areas west of the Dnipro River, including the strategic city of Kherson. Ukraine's president, however, is skeptical. Volodymyr Zelensky and First Lady Olena Zelenska spoke exclusively with CNN's Christian Armanpol. So they're ready to defend this region and they're not ready to leave the city. And the fact that they are in these homes means that they are seriously preparing. But we are also seriously prepared for these developments. But we are not considering this as just one single operation. We have a strategy and different directions. And you can see Christian Armanpour's full exclusive interview with the Zelenskys on her programme on Thursday, that's six in the evening in London, 8 p.m. Kiev time. And Nick Robertson is near the front line at Krivi Re Forest now. Nick, there's scepticism certainly from the, the Ukrainian side about this announced withdrawal that the I guess the fear is that it's some kind of trap to lure Ukrainian forces in. What what more are we hearing? Yeah, a picture is beginning to emerge. Today, we've seen more small groups of Ukrainian troops declaring that they've taken control of villages that are getting increasingly closer to Kherson. Um, Kisilivka is the closest at the moment that we understand that uh, Ukrainian troops have taken. Um, it was formerly fairly close to the front line. It's 15 kilometers away from Kherson, so relatively close. Um, but there have been a number of other villages that Ukrainian troops say they've taken control of. Ukrainian officials are remaining a little sceptical. They see this pull out by Russia as Putin making the best of a bad situation whereby he's essentially defeated and trying to claim that he's withdrawing his troops to save lives and save, uh, you know, save military units um, as, rather than painting it as a, a straight up retreat. Um, there's certainly been videos of Russian troops uh, taking boats across the strategic Dnipro River um, saying that they can understand why they're leaving because the resupply routes have become so uh, treacherous. But I think the real detail of what's happening on the ground is very hard to work out um, at the moment. The Ukrainians believe that they're still going to have to fight their way forward, that if the Russians are pulling back, then they're potentially leaving mines and booby traps along the way. Russia's high military command today said that their troops were pulling out on the pre, uh, you know, sticking to their plan. So it does seem, uh, you know, healthy skepticism from the Ukrainian officials, but it seems on the ground if the troops are beginning beginning to uh, take control of places where the Russians had them just in the past couple of days. 
You know, Nick, you and I, for many days now, have been talking about the, the concern that for every inch of ground that Russia seems to give up, there appears to be payback in terms of targeting of Ukrainian infrastructure, the energy, the general utility services in the country. What's the latest in terms of both those attacks and, and the challenges of restoring those services and people that remain in some form of rolling blackout situation? Her son um, went without electricity a couple of days ago, and the assessment there was that this was something that Russia had done. The Ukrainian assessment was that this was something Russia had done, and we haven't heard an assessment of how long it will take to restore the power. But it, it does seem from the reports coming out of her son over the last couple of weeks that the rebuild there is going to be massive, not just because some territory was fought over, perhaps less so in the city, but because Russia has literally stripped out pretty much everything of value. There was a very big orthopedic hospital there, uh, uh, um, uh, oncology hospital there. We know that uh, a lot of medical equipment was taken out of hospitals. Fire trucks have been taken, banks stripped of their cash and, and other assets. All sorts of valuables from the city, uh, the museum there looted of, of old artifacts and, and pictures. So get there, even if the physical structures are not too badly damaged, there's a potential for booby traps and mines, but also the wherewithal to run a city uh, may be lacking. But I think in terms of electricity, that's something that they might be able to get on top of relatively quickly. Um, and it's also going to help in other areas like Mykolaiv, a nearby town that's been under heavy Russian shelling for a long time uh, from, by the Russian forces near Kherson. Um, it hasn't had drinking water since about April this year. All those sorts of things should improve for the populations just uh, within 30, 40, 50 kilometers of Kherson. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that update there, Nick Robertson. Okay, now, while Russia struggles on the battlefield, it has successfully plunged millions of Ukrainians into cold and dark. As Nick was describing, brutal attacks on energy infrastructure are putting innocent lives at risk as the country heads into the bitter winter weather. Russia managed to destroy 30% of Ukraine's power stations in a week, and repair crews are in a desperate struggle to prop up what's left, some of which dates back to Soviet eras. German Galushenko is Ukraine's energy minister, and he joins us now. Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. Can you just let us know and, and help us understand where the situation stands today with the services and the facilities that you can provide? Um, uh, yes, uh, the situation is, of course, difficult due to this massive shellings, which uh, was really enormous and started from the 10th of October, and it was almost everyday shellings to the energy infrastructure. So they give us a break uh, several days right now. Uh, but uh, the, as you mentioned, so the uh, damage is something around from 30 to 40% of the infrastructure. Of course, we are uh, now repairing as quickly as we can. And uh, so we are trying to, uh, to, to do our job, I mean, to repair uh, as quick as we can do this. But uh, of course, due to this massive shellings, we, we we had to restrict the uh, supply of electricity to our uh, to our consumers and to our households, and of course, it creates uh, also some difficulties for the people. I mean, because uh, that is uh, hours in a day when when people cannot uh, use electricity. Do you have any sense of of how many, in terms of numbers, people are currently affected with some form of 
rolling blackout during the day. You mentioned several hours a day for certain people. How many people are we talking about that are, are still impacted? And can you give us any sense of how long it will take to, to restore it so that they no longer have to suffer those blackout periods? Yeah, the figures are uh, changing, I mean, every day. So the the maximum uh, uh, number of uh, people we were uh, cut from the supply of electricity was 4.5 million uh, Ukrainians. Right. And uh, of course, every day when we repair, so this figure is changing, so and they, this uh, figures drop. Uh, the the uh, uh, the problem is that I mean to answer the question how quickly we would uh, restore everything that is also very very close connected to the uh, to the question or to the answer to the question whether we would see these massive attacks again. So mm -hmm. and and that is the main question because you know that during this uh, these days from the 10th of October they use everything they can. I mean like missiles, drones, uh, artillery. To destroy uh, all kind of, if you if you just look at the map of Ukraine, you can see that they hit almost all around the country, all electricity uh, and production objects. So that's that's uh, really uh, really a challenge. I mean, to, to answer how how they would hit, let's say, to, today in the evening or tomorrow. Yes, um, when you're facing the risk of ongoing attacks, it's difficult to say. Are those facilities any better prepared to defend themselves or to be defended in light of what you've seen today than perhaps they were when the initial attacks took place? Of course, we, we already received uh, some uh, additional air protection system and that is, uh, frankly speaking, that is the best uh, solution to protect uh, our energy system because uh, they usually, these massive strikes and usually these missiles attacks uh, which they strike from airplanes and uh, from different bases, military ships and wherever. Uh, but uh, of course uh, we need, uh, and that, that is our communication with our partners, that need, we need more air protection system, more, a more modern air protection system to be sure that the, the principal uh, energy uh, objects protected on the high level. What about stockpiles of items required to keep repairing these facilities. There was some suggestion even just a week ago that actually finding the equipment that was required. We spoke to your infrastructure minister or deputy infrastructure minister and he was saying actually getting hold of what's required in order to make these fixes is increasingly difficult. What promises have you been made as well that from other nations to provide um, what you require? Yeah, of course, we, we, we had a list of equipment which we need and we needed as, as quickly as we can, of course, we are in constant communication with our partners. With I mean, from uh, all, 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 almost all my colleagues, all ministers of energy in in Europe, in US and UK, so in in Japan. So we 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 discuss this list. We ask for supply of this equipment. Of course, we need we need more of this equipment because of the this level of destruction are very high, and means it means that even this equipment which we had on the stocks. Uh, is, is not enough to very quickly repair everything, but we have these supplies and we, we increase the supplies dramatically also uh, from the first days of these massive attacks. And I am sure that uh, that uh, with the help of our partners, so we would manage to, to increase more. 
I want to ask you, as a as a, a minister of the government now, there's certainly a sense when you read the foreign press that there's perhaps a, a suggestion that they would like the Ukrainian government to be more open to the prospect of even talking to Vladimir Putin and the Russian government about some kind of negotiated solution. Can I ask if you feel any degree of pressure from foreign capitals to at least hint a willingness to negotiate at this moment? For sure, not not uh, on my level and not uh, on my position. What what uh, what is very important from from my my uh, perspective of, as an energy minister is that uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 most important for us that they should uh, should do some actions. Uh, for instance, they supposed to leave the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant because what what is going on now there is, is quite quite horrible, really. And uh, that is very important. I mean that they should fulfill just the international uh, treaties and obligation. And it looks like that is very important ground for any kind of, of negotiation, which I could imagine. Because if, if we are talking that they break the international law, they break the international rules. So uh, how how we could how we could reach some kind of agreement? So that's that's from my point of view. That is very important. Yeah, I think it's important for us to understand, too, that at no point you're saying have some have anybody said to you, look, we'll give you help and we'll give you support and and whatever you need to help fix this. But, hey, let's talk about this conversation over um, whether or not you're willing to negotiate. It's important for us to understand. Minister, what's the backup plan if there are further attacks, if there are more people that are going to suffer in, in the darkest, coldest part of winter without heat and light? What's the backup plan to, to help those people? Do you have one? Of course, we, yeah, yeah, we have. Of course, we have. We call it some extra, extraordinary uh, situation and extraordinary plan for such kinds of situation. But I really hope hope that uh, they they won't achieve the goal that we we supposed to apply these extraordinary plans for our citizens. Uh, because uh, even even uh, all these attacks, which was really incredible, just to give you a figure that on the 10th of October they used more than 80 missiles. So it, it, and they they target most important transmission system and generation facilities in in, in in our country. So and even with this, so we still maintain the system. So that's why I really hope that the this new air protection system and uh, the Quick repairing uh, would uh, help us to 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 maintain the system uh, during the winter. So fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time, and, and we wish you well, and stay safe. The Ukrainian Energy Minister there. Thank you, sir. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, and U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. Investors still following the unresolved battle for U.S. Congress. No red wave, no blue cave, no quick resolution that the markets always crave. But I tell you what, brand new inflation data looking less grave. 
It has U.S. stocks soaring in early trade today. Look at that. The Nasdaq up some 5% in early trade. As we've been reporting, U.S. consumer prices rising at a less than expected 7.7% year over year last month. A better picture month over month too. Let's be clear, there is a long way to go, but it does feel like in some way, one data point it may be, but the tide has turned. The data sparking a sizable drop in bond yields as well, with the US 10-year yield firmly below that 4% level again. Hopes that today's number could allow the Federal Reserve to slow its rate hike campaign if... And I repeat it, we see sustained improvement in prices over the coming months. Now, from fake accounts to very real comments from the U.S. president, it's taking a lot more than 280 characters to sum up the ongoing drama at Twitter. The company is battling a wave of Elon Musk impersonators and parody accounts, which Twitter is desperately trying to clamp down upon. Comedian Kathy Griffin was among those who got her own account suspended. This as President Biden is raising concerns about some of Elon Musk's foreign business relationships after being asked about potential threats to national security. Just take a listen to this. I think that Elon Musk's cooperation and or technical relationships with other countries uh, is worthy of being looked at. Paul and Monica joins us now. That was, uh, I think, President Biden choosing his words very carefully, which in this situation is probably quite smart. I think one of the first tweets that, that Elon Musk put out was comedy is now legal. Uh, on Twitter. Comedy is now not fully legal on Twitter if it's a parody account, but it has the verification tick. We kind of talked about this, I think, at the beginning and how problematic this really was going to be. Yeah, I think Kathy Griffin would probably beg to differ about comedy being uh, legal on uh, Twitter, Julia. Clearly right now, there are a lot of concerns in the advertiser community about this uh, rise in fake verified accounts. It apparently is pretty easy to set up an account and impersonate someone else that already has a blue check mark. And we've seen that happen to Elon Musk and uh, other celebrities and high profile people on Twitter. So I think it's a problem for the company that is trying to convince advertisers that they should stay on Twitter. And Elon Musk himself hosted a Twitter Spaces event yesterday where he was pleading with advertisers to be patient and realize that, you know, yes, there probably are going to be some uh, period of time where things are a little bit in flux, but that Twitter still is a place for big marketers to be. Whether or not they agree, I think remains to be seen. And a lot of big companies are pausing their advertising. And the challenge with this is, and I was thinking about this again last night, you can take a company private and in the traditional sense, that would allow you to make all sorts of changes behind the scenes and you can get things wrong, you can get them right, you can play with it and you can find what works. The problem with Twitter is, however private the company is, it's so public. Every change you make remains public. And I think that's something that perhaps, may dare I say, he perhaps didn't realise before he did this. Or maybe he doesn't care. I don't know. I'm very Elon Musk. Go on. Yeah, it it could be uh, a mix of everything. He may not have fully realized and he may not care that much either. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that Elon Musk didn't want to buy Twitter and went to court to try and stop it from happening. So I think you have to really be skeptical of just how 
much Elon Musk is committed to Twitter's success, despite the fact that he seems to be focusing so much time on Twitter right now that even Tesla Uber bull Dan Ives of Wedbush, who I know you've had on the show before, he is now very skeptical and nervous about all the attention Musk is focusing on Twitter at the expense of Tesla, perhaps. And also to Biden's comments very, very, very quickly on this. If there are questions raised about some of those that invested to allow this deal to take place, and if they then have to perhaps take a step back for whatever reason, then that creates another funding gap. And does that then put the onus once again on on Elon Musk and perhaps having to sell more shares in order to be able to to, to fund the gap? I mean, I'm wildly speculating here, but you can understand why people are nervous. Oh, totally. And make no mistake, all we know, because President Biden did not really elaborate when he was asked a follow-up question for, you know, what he was really concerned about. What we do know is that the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar was one of the investors in the Twitter deal. Saudi Prince Al-Walid, who had been a big Twitter investor uh, previously, also backing. So those might be the foreign entities that uh, you know, the president was referring to, but who knows? I mean, obviously, Tesla is a very big presence in China. Is that something that Musk is concerned about from a national security uh, standpoint? Again, it's all speculation, and the president probably should elaborate at some point, uh, or maybe Elon Musk will send out yet another nasty tweet. He's been known to do that from time to time. <laughs> it wouldn't be we should look out. Or... We might be next, oh, no. Julia. Oh, no. <laughs> Paul, thank you. No comment. Paul and Monica, thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. IMAX reporting a strong quarter after an impressive summer for its movie theatres. Global box office sales rose 25% year over year to $177 million, with 30% of that coming from its slate of local language releases in nations like China, Japan, India and South Korea. IMAX is gearing up for a blockbuster weekend with the highly anticipated release of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. The film is heading for a massive $365 million global opening. And the company is hoping moviegoers will keep flocking to the big screen next month for Avatar The Way of Water. The original Avatar still stands as the highest grossing IMAX film of all time. And joining us now is Rich Gelfond, the CEO of IMAX. Wow, lots of things to be excited about, Rich. Welcome to the show. But you know what blew me away and we alluded to it in the introduction in your latest results was that local language film proportion of the box office, 2% back in 2019, 35% in 2022. Does that say more about perhaps the lack of movies coming from Hollywood or also something strong about local language content? I think if you um, ask consumers about IMAX pre-pandemic, they would have said, well, it's a platform that shows Hollywood blockbusters Mm. on a global basis. And now I think they would uh, cross out the world Hollywood and they would say it shows blockbusters on a global basis. So in places like India or Japan or China or Korea, when people wake up in the morning, even if it's a local language film, they say, we want to see it in IMAX. And that's been part of a deliberate strategy for us to diversify away from just Hollywood films and go more to the local language films. And it's changed consumers' perception of what IMAX is and has really helped us grow. Yeah, it pushes a strength in in some of the growth markets around the world 
South Korea, Japan, for example, even China, if the sort of geopolitics of the of the situation remains tough for American made and American based movies, um, it gives you a stronghold. Yeah, as a matter of fact, in the last two years, uh, 20 and 21, um, the biggest movies in the world were Chinese movies each mm. year. And, and in both cases, um, the biggest movies were filmed with IMAX cameras and released um, with IMAX, not only in China, but somewhat around the world. So the local language doesn't only help in the immediate territory, but it helps the film travel. So the best example of that is Japan, um, where the two biggest movies in the history of Japan, um, one is Shin Evangelion and the other one Demon Slayer, um, they opened in Japan and they in IMAX and um, they travel to other countries. And there's another one um, called um, Dragon Ball Super Super Hero. And that one did so well in Japan. They released it in uh, North America. And in North America, it was a pretty big success. And IMAX did a big part of the box office. So we're starting to see it turn around again. Hollywood exported films um, to other countries and the other countries relied on them. Now, in fact, some of the foreign films are being exported to Hollywood. Wow. Um, I guess that sort of takes me indirectly to my next question, which is, does Avatar get into China? Um, you know, we're hopeful. Um, I, I'd have to say nothing is certain in these mm. days in China, and there's a lot of complicated moving pieces. Um, but there are some positive indications. Um, about a month ago, uh, China released, re-released Avatar 1, and it got a screening with a state-owned Chinese enterprise. So you just have to read um, some tea leaves. And I think our discussions over there um, with the government authorities have indicated that they're optimistic about it. So, you know, I think there's a pretty good chance. Jim Cameron has a terrific relationship in China. Um, they admire his work a great deal. So my guess is yes, but I wouldn't bet the farm. Yeah, and it was $100 million, wasn't it, the first time with, for the first movie? It, never mind when, to your point, it was re-released as well. So we, we sort of know they love the concept. Um, very quickly on that, because then I want to move on. Um, any indications about an easing of COVID restrictions? We're, we were talking about it a lot last week and that there were hopes more broadly, perhaps, of an easing of COVID restrictions. And, of course, it very much plays into your business there in terms of those that actually get to go to cinemas or not. Are you hearing anything or are you sort of giving up guessing? Yeah, actually, you know, we have a, a fairly sizable office there and I just got a memo yesterday and they said there are little signs of things going on so the number of foreign flights allowed in has increased um, the amount of testing in certain areas has diminished a little bit last week they had the German Chancellor and his entourage um, over in China and they didn't require quarantine or the same level of testing so I think the China watchers again they, they, it's not like a light switch where they've said you know, hey, it's really opened up, um, but they've seen signs of it. Oh, another thing I, I think you find interesting, Julie, is that a lot of the commentators on television uh, are saying, you know, long COVID isn't a big deal. And they're saying even COVID is not, doesn't require hospitalization. So in the Chinese way, there's, they seem to be dropping hints that going forward, things have changed. But again, you know, it's not gonna happen overnight. Yeah, I mean, they've created a, a huge fear factor with COVID, so perhaps trying to sort of play that down, which is a, a, an interesting point to note as well. Um, you and I have long well, talked I about... Well, I think on. the fear factor was part of the strategy. 
around the lockdowns to gain buy-in. The fact they seem to be backing away from that a little bit is encouraging. Agreed. Um, You and I have long talked about the IMAX experience outside of the cinemas and what you've been doing to use them differently too. Talk to me about Sims Wave, uh, the acquisition, because this looks fascinating to me in terms of the renewed focus on um, AR, virtual reality, and and the sheer excitement, I think, around the metaverse. How does this play into your your thinking and your plans for the future? Yep, very um, uh, shortly put, um, what SimWave does is it takes, um, it has an objective measure of quality. So the measure on a phone is different than the measure on a 100-inch TV. And it, it then deals with the compression algorithms of the streamers. So to put the news on a phone, uh, you can compress it a lot. To put a Chris Nolan movie on a 100-inch TV, you don't want to compress it very much. And when you think of all the broadcast and streaming content, it's, it, it, it's a lot of money. And if you could uh, calibrate the kind of compression you need for the particular device and content, streamers can save a lot of money. So um, it's part of also our mission, which is to provide the director's intent um, wherever the movie's shown. So obviously in IMAX, it's amazing. I saw Black Panther last night mm. um, and Ryan Coogler, the way he laid it out. It's, it's a friend of mine who's an architect and an artist, like just really admired the art, how it looked. And what SimWave does is it preserves their intent in the home. So it's not only what they do in saving money, but it's also creating the best possible image, which, as you know, is very consistent with what IMAX does. Fascinating. As always, I run out of time talking to you, and there's always more to discuss. Um, I'm also looking forward to seeing Black Panther this weekend. So you, you've teased it well now. We'll, um, we'll, we'll reconvene on this discussion. Great to have so you the here. early results in Europe are pretty good. So yeah. hopefully that keeps up. <laughs> we shall see. Rich, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Rich Galfond, the CEO of IMAX as o- there. As always, thank you, Julia. Thank you. Welcome back. The U.S. president will head to Egypt later today to speak at the COP27 climate conference. In the meantime, his climate envoy, John Kerry, has exclusively told CNN that the U.S. and China must cooperate if targets on climate are to be reached. Kerry recently announced a pretty controversial plan to raise cash for climate action in the developing world by selling carbon credits to companies who want to offset their emissions. It's caused criticism because it could mean companies pay for someone else to cut their emissions instead of reducing their own. And Kerry spoke to our David McKenzie, who is in Sharm el-Sheikh. David, what more did he have to say? Really important subjects. Well, Julia, what you raise is an important subject. And of course, the government, uh, the U.S. government has been defending this uh, policy that they've announced. And so did Secretary Kerry to me. It's a carbon offset program, which is a public-private finance program, which will allow, in their words, uh, developing countries to get financing to make the carbon transition, uh, and they sell it to corporates. Now, the criticism has been, as you say, that those corporates then won't move as quickly to transition their own uh, activities. But Secretary Kerry told me that it's just a question among other things, of money. Trillions of dollars is needed to make the carbon transition, and these kind of partnerships, he says, are absolutely critical. Uh, One of the things uh, surrounding this COP meeting in Egypt, though, is that the Chinese and U.S. delegations, and Kerry and his counterpart, have not been formally talking. The world's biggest emitter, the world's second biggest emitter and largest economy, it's 
critical from a leadership point of view that they do talk. Here's what Kerry said to me. We're not formally neg negotiating at this point, but uh, our hope is that within a short span of time, it will become possible for us to really get together again in full measure and do the things we need to be doing as the two leading emitters in the world and as the two largest economies in the world. China and the United States really need to cooperate on this. And without China, even if the U.S. is, as we are, moving towards a 1.5 degree program, which we are, if we don't have China, nobody else can make to that goal. And we blow through 1.5 and it will cost citizens around the world trillions of more dollars. Politically, there is a sense that the U.S. and China will be competing in the years ahead and some hawkish attitudes towards China. Do you think the cooperation on climate change will be accepted? Well, there's nothing. I mean, competition is a pretty normal thing in the world of business. Uh, businesses always compete for market share, for product line and so forth. Uh, what President Biden has said is we can compete, but we don't have to be confrontational. We don't have to be in conflict. And, and I think that's what is critical here, is that we deal with the issues. And there are real differences between our countries, obviously. But climate should not fit into that bilateral pattern of those issues. Well, I think there will be a lot of people watching when President Biden arrives. Of course, that deep freeze in relations happened after Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan. I don't think necessarily you'll see movement at COP. But it will be very interesting to see at the G20 meetings in Bali uh, if Xi Jinping and President Biden managed to thaw that relationship, because at least on the climate front, it's very important these two countries work together. Yes, protecting the planet has to transcend the geopolitics. It just has to. David, great job. Thank you. David McKenzie there. And finally, what Christie's is calling the largest art auction in history. Paintings and sculptures belonging to the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen went under the hammer last night in New York. The entire sale, which included this masterpiece by Paul Cezanne, it was amazing, achieved a record-breaking $1.5 billion. Proceeds will go to charities supported by Paul Allen, who passed away back in 2018. And I have to say, I was there for the sale, and I literally had to sit on my hands in case I ended up accidentally bidding for something. And the Christie's CEO will be on the show to discuss it tomorrow. And that's it for us today. If you've missed any of our interviews, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 